the History Channel original podcast. Sports History This Week, August 16th, 1960. I'm Kalen Jones. It's 90 minutes before sunrise in a New Mexico desert. At 32 years old, Captain Joe Kittinger arrives at the launch location where soon he will rise up in a polyethylene balloon nearly 20 miles into the air. From there, he'll jump. The ground crew is fast at work, checking off tasks under floodlights. Kittinger's team helps put his high-tension pressure suit on. He wears black mittens and thick white boots, too. The balloon is still being inflated. A pilot compartment will carry Kittinger up above the clouds. And at the foot of the basket, a sign reads, this is the highest step in the world. The journey upwards will be Kittinger's fourth high-altitude balloon launch. But the stakes are different. Previous runs have just been test flights. This time, he'll be going higher than ever before into the stratosphere, where there's basically no pressure. It's more than 100,000 feet into the air. No human has ever been exposed to that kind of altitude. Kittinger steps into the basket of the now-inflated balloon. Four straps are keeping the balloon earthbound. The crew chief signals for the lines to be cut, and off he goes. The balloon is fast, rising 1,200 feet per minute. Kittinger moves through the clouds, up and up, until he can see the curve of the Earth. Then, I said, Lord, take care of me now. And I did this stopwatch, and I jumped. Today, Joe Kittinger becomes the first man to jump from space. His success will change the future of space travel. What does Kittinger's mission reveal about humans' ability to survive at altitudes never reached before? And will the mission be enough to inspire humans to travel beyond the Earth? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's the 1940s. There are no human-made satellites orbiting the Earth. No NASA. Man has not even been to space yet much less landed on the moon. In fact, if someone were to make it to space, no one knows what they might experience. Dr. John Paul Stapp is trying to change that. He knew we were going to go into space and knew that we were not preparing for it. 
and knew that he had to leave the, the uh, charge in the Air Force. That is now Colonel Joe Kittinger, the first man to jump from space and a colleague of Stapp's at Holloman Air Force Base. In the early 1950s, he's a test pilot where Stapp is chief of the Aeromed Lab. Kittinger has only heard rumors of Dr. Stapp so far, a mad genius and evangelist for space travel. Soon, Kittinger's commander announces the Aeromed Lab is looking for a test pilot, and Kittinger volunteers. The project hopes to learn more about how humans can handle weightlessness. Some scientists fear humans can't travel to space because they would be too nauseous from the lack of gravity. Stapp's project seeks to learn what actually happens. Kittinger flies several military planes in such a way that those inside achieve weightlessness. Stapp and Kittinger prove nausea shouldn't be a limiting factor to space travel. In the same year, the two team up again for another project. This time, Stapp is looking to understand what maximum level of G-force a human could survive. The Air Force's prevailing theory? Humans could only withstand up to 18 Gs, 18 times the gravity of Earth. Stapp wants to find out if a pilot could survive bailing out of a jet, moving at supersonic speeds. On December 10, 1954, Stapp shoots himself forward, reaching 632 miles per hour in just five seconds. Then he pulls the brake, coming to a complete stop in just 1.4 seconds. He's hit with a force of more than 40 Gs, more than any human has ever experienced. Kittinger is tasked with following the experiment in a plane while a photographer captures images. The test pilot is blown away by Stapp's commitment. He knew that even if he survived the experiment, it could still be a massive sacrifice. As a matter of fact, for several weeks before the test, he would go back to his home, put on a blindfold, and spend hours doing chores blind. Because he thought there was a possibility he might go blind because of the damage of his eyes on the deceleration. And just as Stapp predicted, the capillaries in his eyes do burst as his rocket sled slams to a brake. And he does go blind, temporarily. Stapp becomes known as the fastest man on Earth and turns into an international sensation. Stapp and Kittinger are proving to be a pretty good team, but there's still a long way to go. Craig Ryan worked closely with Joe Kittinger as a co-author of Come Up and Get Me, an autobiography of Kittinger's life. There were just so many problems that needed to be solved. There was so much to be done, and they were both so driven that they were just the perfect team for this. Kittinger has flown plenty of planes. He was a fighter pilot in West Germany for three years. But this time, Kittinger would be going up in a balloon. And if successful, it would be the very first manned space program. The goal of Project Manhigh is to put a human into a space-equivalent environment above 99% of the Earth's atmosphere for an extended period of time and see if he could survive. Here's Craig Ryan. How much air pressure? Is there any at all? Is there any weather in the upper stratosphere? There was just so much we didn't know. The end goal of the project is to send up a doctor, specifically Dr. David Simons, into space. 
But first, Dr. Stapp wanted a test pilot to make the journey in case anything went wrong. That's where Joe Kittinger comes in. He would be equipped with life support tech inside of a pressurized capsule, lifted by a gas balloon 35,000 feet higher than any human had ever gone before. June 2nd, 1957. They put me in the pressure suit at midnight, and then they put me in the capsule, pressurized the capsule, and then put me on the back end of a pickup truck and drove 20 miles. We got there about 4 o'clock in the morning, and at about 5 o'clock, we started inflating the balloon. And about 6 o'clock, the balloon was inflated, ready to go. Uh, they gave me a countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. They launched the balloon, and away I went. There isn't much time to enjoy the view. Kittinger has a long checklist to follow, making sure everything is going according to plan. And soon, there is a problem. I noticed that I was going through oxygen at a much higher rate than I should have been. And yet, Kittinger continues to rise. 50,000 feet. 60,000 feet. His radio isn't working. He can hear his ground crew, but they can't hear him. At this point, he says he probably should have aborted the mission. Instead, he troubleshoots, letting oxygen from his pressure suit into the capsule. At 72,400 feet, Kittinger salutes, acknowledging that he has now surpassed the world record for the highest altitude reached by a human. The sky above Kittinger is a deep blue, then begins to darken and darken as he goes higher and higher. I was looking at the sky overhead, absolutely black. It was a fantastic situation I was in. And I was delighted I had the opportunity to be the first man in space in that program. At 96,000 feet, the ground crew tells Kittinger he has just enough oxygen to make it back down to Earth. Project Manhai has just proven human beings can not only survive in space, but work efficiently there. It also shows it was possible to create a livable atmosphere in a capsule. This is massive. The journey lays the groundwork for future NASA missions, and Stapp continues to work on Project Manhai, sending a human to the edge of space two more times. It's October 1957 a few months after the balloon experiment, when Kittinger gets another call from Stapp. He's looking for someone to help work on emergency escape systems, which, as a test pilot, Kittinger has some experience with. Just a month earlier, Kittinger goes out for a routine test flight on an F-100 Super Sabre, a jet fighter capable of supersonic speeds. Seconds after takeoff, the plane catches fire. Kittinger turns the jet around to prepare for an emergency landing, but there isn't enough time. Kittinger ejects. I just had my life saved by the escape system in the F-100. And I said, Dr. Stapp, I volunteer to go with you. I would be delighted to work on the escape systems. Kittinger travels to Dayton, Ohio, to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. His mission? look at escape systems from a new perspective. There had been efforts to figure out how a human could safely be delivered from high altitudes back to the Earth, but it was through the perspective of a skydiver. 
A previous project had found a falling body spins too aggressively to safely deploy a parachute in an emergency. Not to mention, the spin rates were fast enough to kill someone. Their solution? Use skydiving techniques to get rid of those problems. But Kittinger has a better idea. Look at the issue from the pilot's perspective. A pilot isn't a skydiver, so the solution has to be more accessible. So I went to Dr. Stepp and I said, Dr. Stepp, I'd like to work on the high altitude problem. He said, go ahead and do it. Project Excelsior is born. Excelsior means even higher in Latin. The goal, take a pilot to 100,000 feet using a gas balloon and an open air basket. That altitude is chosen for a reason. If they were launching a, a, a satellite, a Mercury or Apollo satellite, that a pilot could eject at 100,000 feet and survive. So that was our goal, to show that we can survive from a spacecraft at 100,000 feet. The setup that will take Kittinger into space does not look highly sophisticated. Here's Craig Ryan. It was as bare bones as you can imagine. It was really as I think I said once, it's kind of like something your crazy uncle would build in the garage. That's partially because Project Excelsior would be working on a shoestring budget of just $30,000. An open-air basket is preferable to a capsule. It's cheaper. It would be the first time a human would be at that altitude fully exposed to the stratosphere with only a pressure suit. Once at the correct altitude, the pilot would then jump and be delivered safely back to Earth. So there were two objectives. One, escape my altitude, and two, to put man in an actual space environment. So we figured out, well, we need to find out exactly what the problem is. Kittinger knows the strategy to survive a high-altitude fall cannot be skydiving techniques because, well, pilots aren't skydivers. Kittinger's newly formed team has a solution. I had this brilliant engineer by the name of Francis Beaupre, and he invented a multi-stage parachute called the Beaupre multi-stage parachute. And the idea was that we would free fall from the balloon for about 17 seconds. The tests begin. Kinninger's team drops dummies from high altitudes with the new multi-stage parachute. They find it actually produces enough drag to reduce a human's spinning to survivable levels. After launching plenty of dummies from the sky, the time has come for the first real test of Project Excelsior, sending a human falling towards the Earth. It would be called Excelsior 1. On November 15, 1959, Joe Kittinger's crew wakes him up at 2 a.m. in the little New Mexico town of Truth or Consequences. Today's plan? Send them up to 60,000 feet in order to see how the system and jump procedure work. It's important to learn what might go wrong before they do the ultimate test of a jump at 100,000 feet. While the crew gets ready, Kittinger lays on the ground, picking out constellations. He's sealed in a pressure suit and has to spend two hours breathing pure oxygen. As dawn breaks, Kittinger gets into the passenger compartment and starts his ascent. He draws closer to the stratosphere. There are plenty of risks, 
along the way. You could freeze to death, you could not have enough oxygen, you could have too much carbon dioxide which poison your system. Luckily, none of these issues come up, but things do go wrong. Kittinger can't read his gauges, which show somewhat important numbers like oxygen level and altitude. The glare of the sun is much worse than expected. His faceplate is all fogged up. Once it clears, Kittinger sees he's well past the target jump point, now at 65,000 feet, 5,000 more than the plan. Without a pressure suit, that altitude is fatal. He begins the pre-jump procedure. By the time that's done, the balloon is at 70,000 feet. Kinninger attempts to get up from his seat when he realizes he can't. I was panicky because there I was, all ready to go, and I couldn't stand up. No matter which way he turns, Kinninger just can't escape the seat. He's squeezed into it. It takes 6,000 more feet of elevation and... Finally, I've raced myself loose. He's now 16,000 feet, or more than two and a half miles above the target location. Then, Kittinger jumps. I knew it was going to be a risky free fall because I had watched dummies drop from this altitude and saw how they spun up. So I started skydiving. I rolled over on my stomach and I started turning the left at a violent rate. And I started spinning really violently. While wrenching himself loose from his seat, Kittinger had accidentally triggered the timer for the first stage of his parachute, meant to slow down his spinning. Rather than free-falling for 17 seconds, he only falls for a two and a half before the parachute releases. There's not enough velocity for it to work properly. I remained unconscious until my reserve parachute opened at 18,000 feet, saving my life. Kittinger lands on the ground, still dazed. While to you and me, this whole experience may sound like a nightmare, it's valuable information for the Excelsior team. The fogged up faceplate, the mistimed parachute, the too small seat, these are all fixable issues. Author Craig Ryan. After Excelsior 1, when it when looked like it could have almost killed Joe, the Air Force said, why should we approve another flight? You almost died. And Joe's answer was, This is exactly why we need to do another flight. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hold up. 
the Air Force greenlights another test, but let Stapp know he's on thin ice. It's a month after the first test, December 11th, 1959. Kinninger will rise in a passenger compartment into the uppermost reaches of the atmosphere. He goes out to the New Mexico desert, this time with a seat that will not trap him inside. The other issues are also addressed. Kittinger rises up once again with his sights set on a 75,000-foot jump, another step closer to 100,000 feet. Even if there's a malfunction in his pressure suit at 75,000 feet, Kittinger is close enough to the breathable atmosphere that he should survive. And he does. The parachute system works. No problems with the seat. The second jump had shown that what we were doing was working. So that made us all very happy. We were elated on Excelsior 2. The team would have eight months to prepare for the final test, Excelsior 3. They continued to do dummy tests, but this time from an even higher altitude. In advance of Excelsior 3, Kittinger gets a request from National Geographic. They want to attach a camera to Kittinger's passenger compartment. He's generally not a fan of media attention, but it was an interesting idea, allowing the public to see what he sees. It's August 16th, 1960 at 4 a.m. Kittinger hasn't slept too well, but he's now on site of the launch location back in the New Mexico desert. Kittinger has done three high-altitude balloon missions already, but this would be the culmination of all of them. The crew helps Kittinger get his suit on. He's weighed down with 160 pounds of gear. Then he waits. It came time to take off. It was a man suddenly discovered that there's clouds forming and he came roaring out there. He got there just as I took off. He was going to cancel the flight because of the weather. Before the meteorologist can stop the mission, Kittinger gets in the balloon. A crew member flips the switch to cut the four restraints, and off he goes. To the young captain, the weather looks fine. On the way up, everything is going smoothly. Kittinger is communicating with the ground crew, rising past 20,000 feet, 30,000, where a human needs pressurized oxygen to breathe. At 40,000 feet, there's an issue. You flex the hands, you flex your toes. Well, I discovered that I had no pressure in my right hand. I, I, I was shocked. His hand would not be pressurized. It's not like he'll lose the hand or anything, but he will face some painful swelling. I knew if I told a flight doctor on the ground that I didn't have pressure in my right hand, he would have made me abort the flight. I didn't want that to happen. Because I was really concerned about finances. I was concerned that if we boarded that flight, that I'd never get the opportunity to reach the objectives we had of 100,000 feet. So I made a conscious decision not to till the ground, knowing that I was going into an area that had never been explored before. So up he goes. After an hour and a half, he reaches the target altitude of more than 100,000 feet. Kittinger levels off at 102,800 feet above the Earth and drifts there. He's the first person to stand at that altitude, at the edge of space. 
it was black overhead, black as night. I could see 450 miles. I was awed by the sight. I was awed that here I was at 102,000 feet. No man had ever been that high and looked out at the earth from that altitude, ever. I had a rare opportunity, and I was thrilled to death that I had that opportunity. And I thoroughly enjoyed that 10 minutes as I floated over the jump point. Other than his description of the black sky, Kittinger had little to say about what it all looked like from his vantage point. What's funny is when we were talking to Joe, and I think I asked him one too many times yesterday, like how beautiful and spectacular it was. He seems <laughs> to be very dutiful. You know, he, he's more about the mission. You're exactly right. Joe's not a romantic. He wasn't up there <laughs> just taking in the glories of the universe. He was on a mission. He was busy the whole time. He had things to do. He was not, no, he was not up there writing poems in his head. <laughs> Craig Ryan can help describe a little more of what it looks like in the stratosphere. Partially thanks to previous descriptions from Kittinger, but also other men who have made the journey up that high in capsules. As they went up there was the incredible colors that they saw. Um, the transition from the blackness of space to our atmosphere. Because at noon, if you're at 100,000 feet in a balloon, the Earth is below you and it's in light, but above you is space and it's black at noon. There's no blue sky. So it's a, it's a, it's a really exotic environment. And David Simons at one point said it's almost more like music than a color. Just before his jump, Kittinger triggers the National Geographic camera. It clicks 35 times, capturing his view. It shows a wall of clouds below him. Finally, he somewhat cheekily tells the crew about his unpressurized hand, and then... I said, Lord, take care of me now. And I hit the stopwatch, and I jumped. And watching him take that step and plummet, and you see the earth below you like it's... You've never seen anything like it. It's, 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 100, it's 19 miles down there. You see cloud cover so far down, it looks like it's on another planet almost. I fell for about two or three seconds. I didn't feel like I was falling at all. So I rolled over my back. I looked up, and here the balloon was shooting into space. But actually, the balloon was standing still, and I was going down at a fantastic rate. After about 17 seconds, I felt this tug on my back, and it was my stabilization chute opening right on schedule. I had absolute perfect control. Kittinger blasts toward the Earth at 650 miles an hour. Because of the lack of pressure in the stratosphere, he reaches that speed in just 17 seconds. Think about that. So you're constantly accelerating. But there's nothing there to see how fast you're going. When you're falling, there's no sensation of falling. There's no whistle. There's no wind. You're in a pressure suit. But you have no idea you're going that fast because there's no pressure there. You're in a vacuum. Everything goes according to plan. In just 13 minutes, Kittinger travels 20 miles back towards the Earth. He hits the New Mexico desert with four new records for balloon flight, open gondola flight, free fall, and the longest parachute jump. He can't move till he's helped out of that suit. 
I made a pretty hard landing. So I didn't break anything. All my crew was waiting on me when I landed. They came up. And we were one elated group. We went to the bar and had several bottles of beer and discussed the project. And we're absolutely elated because we had accomplished what we set out to do. That's incredible. Project Excelsior proves to be a concrete step in the advancement of space travel. Craig Ryan says the moon landing likely still would have happened without Excelsior, but probably not as soon as 1969. NASA was able to skip some steps because of what they learned from Mannheim and Excelsior. Not only did it prove humans could survive in space, it was an advancement in high-altitude emergency escape systems. Now today, Every ejection seat in the world uses a stabilization parachute, a stabilization high altitude. And for the rest of the world, the imagery captured by Joe Kittinger's mission with that National Geographic camera is a first glance at the next frontier, space. In the coming weeks, Kittinger would grace the cover of Life magazine. He appears on The Ed Sullivan Show, speaks with Walter Cronkite, and even receives a trophy from President Dwight Eisenhower. NASA's own man-in-space program, Project Mercury, is already underway. It would send men to space in a rocket this time, instead of a balloon, which is now considered passe. The group of seven men that make up Project Mercury are considered the first astronauts, chosen for their unique physical and mental prowess. Neil Armstrong is among them. If not for Project Excelsior, Kittinger too might have been one of those astronauts. Craig Ryan explains. Joe, as he will tell you, happily gave up his ambitions for Project Mercury and stayed on Excelsior. But he would have been one of those that, whose names everybody knew if he had gone that other way. Over the years, many people have tried to break Joe Kittinger's freefall record. One person actually died trying. Decades would pass before a realistic plan came together. Red Bull, yes, the energy drink company, reached out to Kittinger in 2007. Felix Baumgartner, an Austrian skydiver, would attempt to break the highest freefall record. But they wanted Kittinger to come on as a consultant. He was skeptical. I don't have to drink a Red Bull. <laughs> I figured that would really do it. But they said, no, okay. So they brought me on board as a consultant. On October 14, 2012, Felix Baumgartner rises in a balloon to 127,852 feet more than 25,000 feet higher than Kittinger, and jumps. Baumgartner becomes the first person to break the sound barrier. He shoots downward at 843 miles an hour. They heard the sonic boom on the ground when he went supersonic. So it was a very successful flight. He proved you could do a skydive. The mission ostensibly had scientific aspirations, but Craig Ryan doesn't quite buy it. My opinion is that most of that is just window dressing. What they were really doing was, it was a record-setting project. There's nothing wrong with that, but I, I, I sometimes wish that the world would be a little more honest about what's going on here. In 2014, a Google executive named Alan Eustace breaks that record, jumping from 135,890 feet Joe was just as thrilled with that and actually reached out to Eustace and said, I want to come celebrate with you. What does that willingness to be celebratory of someone breaking 
his record. I mean, what does that say about Joe? I think it says everything. He, this was never just about glory. Project Excelsior would not be the last extraordinary thing done by Joe Kittinger. He served in Vietnam, commanding the most celebrated squadron known as Triple Nickel, famous for shooting down a record number of Soviet military fighter aircrafts known as MiGs. He was a prisoner of war for 11 months in Vietnam. And he went on to set six world records in a solo transatlantic balloon flight from Maine to Italy. Life has been a great adventure for me. It still is an adventure. I look back on all my accomplishments with pride, with joy, and the sky was my office. I love flying. I love people make it happen. And I've had a wonderful life. It's hard to overstate the impact of the work Joe Kittinger and Dr. John Paul Stapp did together. They proved the human could fall from the highest altitudes ever reached at the time. They showed a human could return back to Earth after rising to record levels. In the process, they showed the beauty of space in a time where few wanted to invest in space travel at all. Do you think he should be a person who's more celebrated, even though he doesn't maybe want that kind of glory? Of course. I think more people should know about Joe and know about his stories and know about what kind of guy he he was and is. But again, as I say, once NASA went up and started sending those rockets to the moon and you saw Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin bouncing around on the surface of the moon, it took a lot of steam out of the achievements of the balloonists. And I think it's really important that we continue to remember and celebrate them because Armstrong and Aldrin would not have gotten there so quickly if it had not been for all these people that sacrificed to get them there. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week. 1970, Pat Palinkas becomes the first woman to play in a pro football game. She held the ball for her husband during an extra point attempt for the Orlando Panthers. And 1909, the first race is held at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It's now the home to the motor racing competition, the Indianapolis 500, or Indy 500. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, sportspod at history.com. We love to hear from our fans, and non-fans too. Special thanks to our guests, Joe Kittinger and Craig Ryan. This episode was produced by Cooper McKim, story edited by me, Kalen Jones, and sound designed by Bill Moss. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingbert. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.